Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast. My name is Chris Safarova. I'm your host. I'm a founder and CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Joining us today is Dr. Ben Benzel. Ben is a professor and former Dean of Executive Education at INSEAD. As a business innovation consultant, he has helped some of the world's leading companies build innovation into their corporate DNA. Ben, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Chris. Uh, and th- thank you for having me. Before we get started talking about your work, let's talk a little bit about what you have been doing. Can you give us a highlight reel of your career? What led you to what you are doing today? Yes, and maybe it will be a good way to explain why I'm calling now uh, from, from Japan. Uh, yes. I understand you are on the, on, the, on the west coast of the United States, and I'm in, yes. I'm in, in Kobe in Japan. Yes. <laughs> and there is a logic to this. But uh, yes, so uh, originally I'm, um, I mean, originally I'm French. I was uh, trained as a, a French engineer uh, uh, in France, France uh, Grand Ecole System. And in 1981, I uh, obtained a scholarship to, to go to Japan. So this is where my uh, Japanese uh, adventure started. So I, I went to Japan and uh, studied the language. And after a while, uh, changed the fields and started to study management. This was a time, you may remember, where everybody was very interested in Japanese style management. Yes. So I stayed, I stayed there for, for, for five years, uh, got married, and then moved to uh, the U.S. Uh, I went to do my PhD at MIT. And there I continued my interest in, in Japanese firm, and I did my... Uh, uh, PhD research on uh, the uh, way that Japanese firms were managing supplier, uh, buyer supplier relationships in the automobile industry. So I was very, very much immersed in, uh, in the Japanese companies comparatively, you know, comparing with the US firms. And then uh, I should say after 10 years being away from home, uh, I went back to France and joined uh, INSEAD, INSEAD the, the business school for the world. As you may know, we have a campus in, uh, uh, our original campus was in Fontainebleau, south of Paris. We have a campus in Singapore, one in uh, Abu Dhabi, and uh, now we have a research center in San Francisco. Um, and when I joined INSEAD, I, uh, of course, uh, uh, taught, taught all sorts of topics, but uh, became very interested in what can we learn this time from Japanese firms, not only in production, but also maybe in innovation. And this is how I started to uh, really look and work with uh, many firms around the world, trying to understand how they, they manage innovation. And... Uh, 
during my career, uh, as you may know, academics, uh, uh, in our case, every seven years, you have the right to a sabbatical year. Uh, and uh, I've done quite a few sabbaticals um, uh, in the US. Mm-hmm. And now that it was my fourth one, my wife said, uh, now you owe me one, we should do one in Japan. So this is, <laughs> this is how I, I, I came to, to Japan. And now I'm affiliated with Kobe University here for one year. So you're in Japan for one year. That's what, what is it like to be in Japan? Oh, I love Japan. I mean, let's, let's make it clear. I love Japan. I mean, I came on a scholarship, which I was supposed to be there for just a couple of years, learn the language and do some studies. But uh, the, 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 the people are so uh, welcoming. Uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I fell in love with the country. Uh, with my wife as well, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and um, um, and, and uh, as a matter of fact, also from a professional point of view, it is a very interesting uh, uh, comparative point for me because this is a, a, a let's call it a, a capitalistic system and a, a business system uh, which is very different from the Anglo-Saxon system that uh, I was trained in. So doing the comparison is very interesting to me. So when it comes to innovation, for instance, it was interesting to also look at uh, how do people approach the topic of innovation given their cultural context. So uh, for me, not only from a personal point of view, I am, as as I said, uh, Japan is my second second home, but uh, from a professional point of view, I found it extremely exciting and interesting to to, to compare and stretch the concepts and to see whether what uh, I study, for instance, about innovation and how firms innovate, how does that apply or uh, how would it work in a different cultural context? So I'm very much interested in, in uh, concepts of innovation, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, I'm even more interested in uh, uh, looking at how they can be embedded in different cultural contexts. But then what are some differences you are noticing in Japan in terms of how Japanese corporate leaders approach innovation versus, let's say, United States? I would say that uh, there, there, there are differences. And of course, the differences are very much uh, affected by the, I mean, the context they have. I mean, you know, every, every company in, in the world operates within an institutional system with a uh, a, a labor system, a legal system, um, a cultural uh, context, which is different. But what is I found very interesting to me uh, is more about what were the similarities and how uh, uh, we can think of uh, approaches or systematic approaches that can work in different contexts. So let me let me kind of uh, uh, be a bit more specific. Through the research that I've done, I found that ma- many people, including in Japan, and maybe this is the result of uh, uh, how people are globally educated these days, but many people think that uh, you need uh, a genius leader or to be a startup to innovate. That's not true. Uh, as I said, during the work I do, I found established even centuries old companies, including in Japan, by the way, uh, that can innovate. Uh, uh, how do they do this? 
Well, they don't necessarily look for uh, huge industry changing uh, effects, but uh, for small and important changes in unexpected places. And they use continuous innovation, continuous and systematic innovation, innovation of all kinds and innovation driven by everyone. And in that sense, uh, I, I see this uh, uh, very powerful in Japan because as, as, as I was mentioning, I did, I did my first research kind of career started uh, looking at Japanese firms and they had something called total quality management. They, they, they kind of started an embedded processes into production systems. So this is, this is not so different. Uh, so my research showed that uh, uh, it's not only uh, the genius leader is not only the R&D that can innovate, but everybody can innovate. And, and this, is, this is true wherever you go. Now, the question is, how do you uh, uh, enlist and leverage the innovating capabilities of everybody in the organization? And this is, this is really where uh, my, my work has been leading me to. Perhaps you could define some terms for us. What does it mean to you to innovate? And would you explain a distinction you draw between innovation and innovating? Yes, I mean, this is a, a, a quite interesting phenomena that uh, I've discovered over the years. I mean, I've been, I've, I mean, to be honest, I've been doing work on uh, the subject of innovation and helping companies uh, build innovating cultures uh, for more than 15, 20 years. And I've discovered, uh, you know, doing it uh, on a regular basis that the word you use uh, has a different effect on people. So I noticed that the word innovation itself um, is very intimidating to uh, frontline people. Um, and on, particularly if you start to put qualifiers like uh, disruptive uh, innovation or creating a new market space. It gets, when I, when I talk to people about innovation in that sense, uh, it's intimidating, it creates a, a, a sense of anxiety and I can feel a tension in the room. And then of course, this is total serendipitous, but uh, by accident, I started to use the word innovating uh, mm -hmm. uh, as a verb, mm -hmm. uh, not the noun, but the verb, uh, or to innovate. Let's let's try to innovate, and then suddenly I felt that the tension and the stress would go away, and I wondered what was happening. And I realized that people understood immediately that when you talk about innovation, usually they associate with it a product or um, a service but definitely an outcome, uh, a result. Okay, let's find an innovation. So this is about finding a result. And, 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 and that is really stressful and intimidating. But if you say to innovate, people immediately understand that this is about a process. It's about action. It's about activities. And action and activities, you can learn. Uh, 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 if it's about a behavior, we can teach people, we can train people to uh, do certain actions and uh, we can motivate them for certain behavior or attitude. So I, I quickly discovered that by focusing not on innovation as the output, but on the process and how we can build 
skills and train people in innovating, uh, uh, frontline people felt much more engaged. So I don't know if this is a metaphor that can speak for you, but um, I usually uh, talk about the, you know, the, the metaphor of the, the iceberg, uh, the mm -hmm. iceberg where you see, you see only a, a, a small mountain on the top uh, uh, emerging above the water and then and then below you have the mass of the, the the ice so for me innovation as a noun the product is what we see above the water and innovating and building innovating capabilities is what we don't see which is under the water is the mass of capability and if you will i discovered that of course you might sometimes have geniuses and R&D might generate uh, innovation on their own, but to be an innovative organization, you need to build the capabilities that are under the water. And this is, this is really what uh, my work led me to, is to reflect and look at companies that were able to build the innovating capabilities across the organization. Uh, what is under the water, and then, and then, if you if you have uh, built this collective, it's not about individuals. I, it's about this collective genius, this collective capability. Then you will generate innovations. You will generate products and services. So, really, my work ended up focusing not so much on how you know, to detect geniuses or how to help individuals become more innovative, but it's more about how you can create these innovating capability, collective capability, where anyone can innovate. Uh, second, you can innovate in anything you do. It's not only about your product and your services, you can also innovate in your uh, processes, in your functions, uh, and more importantly, you can make innovating, the verb you remember, uh, a habit, something that people do on a regular basis. I love this analogy that you have with the iceberg. And you are so right. It is very true that innovation, very often it comes not from leadership, it comes from anyone within the company. And there are so many amazing examples. And it makes me think that for many people, people have kind of philosophical commitment to innovation, but how can our listeners convert philosophical commitment to innovation into a practical everyday reality? So I, you're totally right. Huh? I mean, a lot of people think that leadership, uh, no, innovation comes from the leaders or from, from, from uh, the specialists, the R&D people. Uh, so I think most people would agree that uh, any, anyone has, uh, has, can innovate in a sense, right? Um, I mean, and on, on top of it, uh, uh, I mean, without being too philosophical, uh, we, we all agree that anyone has a potential to innovate. Number two, everyone has a customer in an organization, whether it is internal, an internal or, or an external customer. Everybody has a sense of they're doing their work. And usually this is what I call execution. They have a job to do, uh, to execute, to solve problems. Uh, and, and at the same time, they have this, uh, uh, this capability to innovate. So I think what is important to jumpstart 
the what I call the innovating engine, it is important to first give permission, give permission to people to innovate. I think uh, uh, this is something that is so obvious, but people kind of forget is that if you don't give them permission, uh, they will kind of implicitly believe that their job is to just execute the task that they've been given. So, and, and then since they have a customer, it can be very simple to jumpstart. I, mean, I, can, uh, I mean, just like, for instance, giving people, I don't know, I mean, I, I could say 30 minutes on a regular basis where they can spend time looking at their customers or listening to their customers, but not in in a in a in an execution mode but in a innovation mode which means that instead of trying to sell something to the customer or to convince them of that their best solution is the one they can spend time with a sense of empathy trying to understand uh, the customer from their point of view what, what what are they struggling with what is the problem they're dealing with and and this can be very simple i mean i can give you a uh, um, an example, just as a, as, as a metaphor, if you want. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, once we had uh, Star, Starwood, you know, the global uh, hospitality chain, the hotel chain, uh, they had a conference uh, in Paris. They had a conference in Paris with uh, uh, 700 people, uh, I mean, frontline managers attending. So we, we did a little exercise with them. Um, we took the 700 people and we split them in 64 teams. Uh, so we, we, we gave them uh, a, a couple very simple uh, tools and techniques. Then we gave to, to, to observe their customers. So then we gave them notepads and cameras and we sent them all in the streets of Paris to roam around trying to capture uh, uh, insights, stories, uh, images from, from their customers in the streets. Um, it was fantastic. It took, uh, they came back three, three hours later and they had a wealth of insights and stories to tell and pictures to share. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, collectively, they generated 1,700 ideas. That's a lot. This was incredible. And of course, many of those were uh, ideas that went to, uh, I mean, you know, first they spent some time cataloging and, 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 and you know, codifying these ideas. Uh, but many of them ended up being kind of uh, used to improve existing processes or products. But as a matter of fact, a few of them ended up uh, full-blown as full-blown projects and became new businesses for Starwood. So you can see here, it, I mean, it's an exercise of three hours, right? but you could, you could do it you know, in small bits. Uh, uh, 1700 ideas and it was the most interesting thing was one of the the f pieces of feedback we got somebody says oh I, I i didn't think i was a creative type i didn't think i was a creative type and then he said well but now i think i can do it so for me this is this is really how you just start the, the the whole engine you have to give permission to people to innovate and then create a space a protected space where they can actually observe uh, the, the customer. And we can talk later about how they can, they can learn from, from customers, from non-customers, from 
the silence of the customer. But 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 I think this is where it starts: is really to uh, give them the, the 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 permission, give them the space, and give them uh, a, a few tools. I love this, Ben. So we spoke about that everyone can innovate. There is also a fixation about innovating the product or service. And companies are not looking at innovation in a broader sense, such as innovating a business model or innovating within the HR department. What advice can you give to our listeners on how they can start seeing opportunities for innovation everywhere? I think it, it like you just said, it starts with the, 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 the notion that uh, you called it a fixation. I mean, the, the, not only there's a fixation that innovation has to come from specialists, but we just discussed that anybody can innovate. But second, you can innovate in everything you do. Uh, and the fixation is always that innovation is about technology, is about product. And I think one of the first things you, you, you can do is to, is, is, is to stay, change not only the mindset, but also how you organize yourself when you do innovating. Um, as, as I like to say, companies, uh, any organization, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, has to uh, uh, excel at two somewhat different and contradictory uh, activities. First, they have to execute today's strategy. This is, uh, uh, they have to uh, design and deliver uh, the, the, the products that their customers expect. And they have to, you know, and we know that managers all around the world spend a lifetime trying to uh, uh, perfect their execution skills. So this is what I usually refer as execution and the execution engine. But at the same time, they need to uh, uh, prepare the, the, the organization's future they have to rethink, reimagine uh, the future of the organization. They have to uh, uh, reimagine their existing product, but also come up with products that and services that nobody has thought about before. So you can see that at any time, uh, uh, managers have to excel at those two tasks, executing and innovating. So when they are in execution engine, the, the thing is that they're very often organized, and this is fine, huh? this is what an execution engine, it's about control. Execution is about control. So very often, and it's no surprise that organizations are organized in layers of hierarchy, they have very sophisticated control system and they organized in, in vertical silos, very often uh, uh, focused on the problem that they're trying to solve. So you put a team of specialists, like right? we have designers to do the design, marketing and sale to, do, to sell the solution. And then we have another set of specialists who deliver the solution. So these are very much vertical structures, vertical silos focused on the problem the challenge to be solved. But when people switch their mind and switch their activity to innovating, then it's less about control. It's more about delegation. It's all more about uh, collaboration. It's about team building, team working, working in teams. And there it is about working in horizontal, cross-disciplinary horizontal structures, which are now focused on a customer not on a problem, but on a customer. Uh, 
again, I, I can maybe give a give an example. I I, I did some some work and uh, I spent quite some time with a a, a Turkish company uh, called Korsa. Korsa is a supplier. Uh, they started actually as a commodity supplier of uh, fabric. They provide uh, fabric used to reinforce tires. So their customers are tire tire companies, the big the big tire companies. So what they do is on a regular basis they send teams, cross disciplinary teams, to the factories of their customers. And the team could include uh, uh, somebody from design, somebody from engineering, production, marketing, uh, uh, legal, HR. And these teams, they go and they literally camp for days, for a few days at the customer's uh, sites. And they just uh, roam around, look at what's happening and talk to the, the workers uh, about what they see. So. Now, when you have a cross-disciplinary team working on a customer and trying to understand what the customer is trying to do, uh, uh, you never know where the idea is gonna come from. Who's going to see something um, that is a pain point for the customer or something uh, that the customer desires. I'm always surprised that it's rarely those who think we think are going to get the idea who actually have the, 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 the interesting insights. So for instance, they were telling me that uh, at one tire, uh, one tire uh, customer, one tire factory, uh, uh, some of the people in the team, they, they had noticed that the, the customers were uh, having trouble safely handling rolls of, um, of fabric, reinforcing fabric. And you can see there, uh, it was it was not clear who noticed that, but they immediately understood. They were peeking into a problem. They were seeing a problem that the customer never told them about. The customer never complained about it, never told them about. Maybe they didn't know about it, but uh, uh, it took a few days for the team to come back uh, at Corsa and to study the problem, design a, a, a small methodology, a small process, train their customers, and they took care of the problem. So they taught the customer how to handle those uh, uh, roles using not uh, three people and taking 30 minutes of resources, but they could do it now in 12 minutes with one person. So you can see, just putting these cross-functional teams uh, at the customer, looking at the customer, not in, 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 a, in a sell mode, trying to sell something, but trying to listen and observe the customer problems uh, uh, can, can, can get you to actually uh, jumpstart jump this, uh, this innovation process where uh, you can go beyond products. Because now the conclusion is that this Turkish company, which was a commodity supplier, had transformed itself into a very innovative supplier of services and, and, and processes to its customers. It has become a highly differentiated uh, uh, supplier on the basis of, of uh, services. 
And by the way, just to finish, uh, it, it is now uh, uh, one of the, the, the most innovative companies in, in Turkey. I think it's uh, uh, number three in terms of its innovative capability and has received uh, uh, many, many, many uh, national awards for innovation. I love your examples about working with customers, co-creating products with customers. We spoke about how anyone can innovate if they are given permission and if they are taught how to listen to the customer, anyone can have an idea. Can we speak in more detail about how can companies develop a deeper understanding of customers and create a culture of collaborating with customers so they can offer the ideal combination of performance attributes price and other characteristics that customers need and want. In other words, so they can produce a product or service with powerful market appeal. So for me, as I was saying, we companies are functioning under two with two engines, right? We have the execution engine, which is essential. Okay, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, there are consultants and business schools working on developing new method about how to execute better. So this is something that uh, uh, is, 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 is essential and will continue to be essential. So my point is that companies need to simultaneously build an innovating engine. And this is what my really my research focuses on is how do you build this innovating engine which is something really uh, 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 concrete, uh, something that is protected. This is a space that is uh, uh, organized with its structure, its processes, and its own culture. But organizations have to have these two engines operating at the same time. Now, as you may feel, when people are operating in the execution engine, they're very supply side driven. As I said, they put specialists together to try to solve a problem. They're very problem solving oriented. It's a very conversion prob, uh, process. But when they are operating in the uh, innovating engine, and note, everybody has to be spending some time in both engines. Huh? Uh, of course, people spend a lot of time in the execution engine, but it is important for management, in particular middle management, we may talk about them as well, maybe later, but to create a space where people can spend time innovating. And when they are in the innovating space, then they have to take a customer side view of their work, not a supplier side view. Uh, so they need to really learn and again there are tools and techniques to help people learn how to do this but they have to learn how to listen um, to the customer so i mean there i would like to again make a, a few distinctions they have to learn how to listen to the cust the the what i call the, the voice of the customer i think a lot of people are already aware of the voice of the customer and when you are in listening mode listening to the voice of the customer, you have to operate with a lot of empathy, trying to understand not only your, your product, actually, it's, it's almost irrelevant. It's more a question of trying to understand what is the problem that the customer is trying to solve? What is, what is their job to be done? What is their life? And try to understand uh, why they do what they do. Well, uh, this is a very important one. Uh, what are the beliefs and, uh, and, 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 and the values that are driving them 
uh, in doing what they do, why they do what they do, why they do it the way they do. Uh, so this is where you need to switch a little bit your mindset and not be in, as I call it, you know, tell mode, uh, trying to sell them, but really openly listen. And there are techniques again. But there's another one that is also very important to learn to listen to, which I call the silence of the customer. Yes, tell the us more about that. The, this is the things they don't tell you. And they might not tell you or complain or uh, direct you in that uh, direction. Not, not, I mean, maybe, maybe because they don't know of the problem or maybe they know, but they don't think that it's for you to solve the problem. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe an example can clarify what I'm talking about. Um, this, is, this is how uh, Philips, uh, the Dutch uh, consumer electronics and uh, appliances company uh, uh, developed the, the first kettle uh, with a lime, lime scale uh, filter. So uh, the story was told to me by a, a consultant working in our research team and uh, he worked on an assignment where Philips at the time was very unhappy with their market share in the UK market and they wanted to you know, boost their market share. So they put together a, a, a new product development team and the team leader uh, sent a few people to effectively live uh, in some uh, family homes uh, with, with, with customers and observing. And in a few days, a few of them noticed uh, a problem that nobody had told them about. And this was the, 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 the lime scale, uh, when they were boiling the tap water, uh, I mean, uh, in, in, in that part of England, they had, uh, they had uh, ca calcium in the water. So when you boil the water, you end up with a little film, a little coat of, uh, of, um, of lime scale which is not very appetizing when you pour this in and in, in, in make your tea. Uh, and you can see, this is obviously a problem the customers were fully aware of. I mean, they noticed that people were using their spoon and trying to fish for the, uh, the lime scale and take it off the cup and, and, uh, and drink their tea. But you see the customers are fully aware of the problem, but they wouldn't complain to a kettle manufacturer by the lime scale in the water, they would, uh, you know, uh, go to the uh, water authorities or the water operator. So Philips, you know, simply developed um, a, a mouse filter, and you may want to check your kettles now. Most kettles have that, uh, and and the, the the mouse filter just stops the the lime scale as you uh, pour the uh, water in the in a cup of tea. Uh, and, and, and as a result of that, uh, not only Philips market share, but the whole market uh, bounced back because people started to change their, their, their kettle. So you see, this is, this is a very good example of what I call uh, the silence of the customer. The customer, uh, I mean, there are many cases we know, and I can also give examples of many cases where the customer doesn't know they have a problem or they have an, uh, uh, a, a, a need or a desire, a, a latent need or desire, 
but you might even have cases where the customer deeply knows about the problem, but wouldn't, wouldn't kind of tell you because you don't think that it's your job to fix. So it requires a, a different approach. I mean, not only I talked about empathy, but it, it requires techniques. Uh, that now people talk a lot about design thinking. So a lot of the techniques are coming from design thinking about how to try to understand. And uh, I, I propose also a, a set of tools and methodologies to codify the, uh, in a very systematic way, the, the life of the customer so that you can see the problem of the life, the, the lime scale problem, even though the customer doesn't talk to you about it. So this is really uh, the, 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 the important thing is, is the focus on the customer, the silence, the voice of the customer, the silence of the customer. And then I could, I could, I could start another, but uh, I, I wanna give you a chance for, for more questions, but there's another section, which is about non-customers. But uh, uh, this, is, this is also another interesting uh, place where you can find inspiration for innovation. That's a good thing to cover. Ben, let's talk about non-customers. So non-customers, obviously when I say non-customers, people immediately think of uh, um, customers that you, I mean, you know, business that you're leaving on the table, customers that uh, should be your customers, but uh, are not your customers. So this is, there's, there's a whole, and, and there again, uh, I insist on that, there are uh, very systematic techniques uh, to, to, to look for, for those. So, uh, uh, you can look at, uh, uh, for instance, you can learn from people who are in in in, in different industries. For instance, I mean, uh, uh, I I can I can give you a quick example of uh, uh, this Finnish company called Fisk Cars. They uh, uh, produce uh, uh, tableware and also uh, out, outdoor and garden tools. So, for instance, when they uh, to to better understand how to design their their axes or their knives, their cutting tools. I mean, they they would they would they would go and observe, for instance, uh, surgeons uh, in operating rooms, uh, or, or for instance, they are not their customers, right? But uh, but 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 they're doing a very similar job to be done, or uh, to 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 look for tools for the garden, they go to uh, forestry uh, uh, workers because these, they do the similar tasks, but they do them at a large scale and uh, with a, a lot of people. So there are like obvious, not, not obvious, but there are uh, easy ones to find like this. But I would like to give you another example, which is less, less uh, immediate, which is to, to, to look at people within your value chain uh, not necessarily your end user or your customer, but look at people in your value chain, along your value chain, who could influence or uh, uh, prescribe your, your product uh, to, your, to, your, to your customers. So uh, again, an example can, can speak uh, louder. So there's one company I, I also uh, like to mention uh, uh, the company is called ecosem ecosem this is a, a, a cement company a cement company uh, which is based on a, on a on a new technology it's called ggbs 
granulated uh, ground granulated uh, uh, blast furnace uh, uh, cement. So this is a cement that is based on a on a new technology that has a, a lower carbon uh, footprint. And, and the, the, the GGBS is, is a, a, an out product, a product, a byproduct of uh, furnaces, you know, uh, uh, in metallurgy. In, 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 uh... So for all practical purposes, this is a better technology uh, in terms of its uh, impact on the environment lower carbon footprint and it's already a byproduct of another industry. However, the cement industry is, um, is an oligopoly uh, dominated by a few big players who would have difficulty to retool to include GGBS technology. So when Ecosem started, uh, uh, and, uh, starting in the market, they had difficulties to convince their customers uh, to uh, adopt GGBS technology, even though it was more uh, uh, more efficient and 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 uh, same quality, same performance, and lower carbon footprint. So the the CEO understood one thing is that uh, he started to uh, talk to the regulators. He started to actually. Uh, uh, make sure it took him a long time. It took him about four years to uh, uh, get the uh, regulators to include in their committees people who would know about GGBS technology. And over over four years, he managed to get French regulators. I mean, this was in France. French regulators to allow GBBS technology in the market. So you can see. Here, the innovation, I mean, the technology is, is the innovation, but the market innovation was not to, to focus on the end users, the customers, uh, but to go to the regulators. So sometimes you need to look at the whole ecosystem in your business and uh, focus on innovation that might create value, not necessarily for the customer that you're targeting, but somebody else in the ecosystem who will unlock uh, the market for you. So this is, this is another example of non-customers. As a matter of fact, uh, if you classify them, there are uh, six types of uh, ways to look for non-customers, but I don't want to go through all of them now, but yeah. This is a very helpful way to think about it. It's a great way to find opportunities it reminds me of a more common way of just looking at other industries and looking for things that Absolutely. you can borrow, but it's much broader. It opens so many more opportunities. Absolutely. And, and the other industries uh, is one of, I said there were six ways. So is one of those ways. There are five more ways to really uh, systematically look in different places. Like you, you, instead of looking at your existing customers, um, and your existing markets, you look under different rocks. So there are six other rocks you can look and, and, and find uh, potential opportunities. Yes, absolutely. You're right, Chris. Ben, so can you tell us what are the other five rocks? I don't want our listeners not be able to sleep at night. <laughs> so you can look at other industries. Within the same industry, you can look at uh, uh, different customer, customer segments. 
you can borrow an idea from a segment and take it to another. So the, the industry is, is, is easy, right? You look at another industry, they, they're trying to solve a similar problem, but uh, uh, what can you learn from that? And you basically uh, borrow, let's, let's, let's be polite, Let, let's borrow the idea and bring it into your, your, your solution. You can learn from another customer segment. As I said, you can look at your whole value chain and, and try to focus on uh, uh, another key player, like I said, uh, you can look at your suppliers, for instance, you can look at regulators, you can look at uh, distributors, you can look at um, uh, proscribers. Uh, so you look somewhere else and you try to focus on those people. You can uh, uh, broaden the scope of what you do. Uh, so in a sense, you could almost say, then uh, that the, the kettle example I gave you, or oh, actually there's another example that is much better that people can relate to. When you think about uh, what Ikea, when they entered the market with the, um, the playground for the children, uh, do, do you know about that? You know, in the Ikea stores, you can go yes. with a family and you can leave your kids. Somebody's taking care of your kids. So if you think about it, the, the, the playground for the kids has nothing to do with, with, with furniture. It is helping customers solve a problem they had before going to the store, which is what to do with the kids. So you don't need a babysitter. So they're solving a problem, babysitting for you, which is not a furniture store's problem. So in a similar way, you can think about some problems that the customers might have before or after they interact with your product and service and expand the scope of what you do for them, even if it's not something that they would necessarily expect from you. But, but if you do it, if you unlock that problem for them, they'll love you for that, right? Then there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another one, uh, uh, which is to switch the appeal for your, your product or service. So if your product is very much focused on, uh, let's say, functional appeal, you can move it to, to be much more emotional appeal or vice versa. As a matter of fact, I can, I can use the example that I just told you about Ecosem and the cement by actually bringing a new cement uh, that, that has uh, uh, better environmental properties is, is, is actually switching or in, in adding, uh, uh, I would, I, yeah, I could call it emotional appeal emotional appeal to a functional product. Cement is very functional. It's about strength, it's about uh, resistance. It has all sorts of phys phys physical properties, but by adding this um, environmental benefit, I think it, uh, it, 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 it adds an emotional appeal to, to the product. Uh, and I think maybe not the direct customer, the construction companies, but the, but the, 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 the people using the construction uh, will we'll be sensitive to that. Uh, uh, another one is to not look at the customers of today. To this is the sixth uh, uh, path. You look at the customers of the future. So you try to project on, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like scenario planning, but you kind of project on, on the future. Uh, I, I remember just quickly, uh, uh, an exercise I did once with a, um, uh, a bank in uh, in Abu Dhabi, where uh, these people were looking for ideas for uh, their high wealth uh, customers. 
very, very high wealth customers. And uh, instead of focusing on their current customers, they, using the tools that I was uh, teaching them, we got them to focus not on the customers of uh, today, but the customers in, in five to seven years. And they realized that those customers were actually teenagers today. So then they focused their mind of on what can we do, what kind of products and services we can deliver to these people who are not our current customers now, but will become customers in, in a few years. So they started to actually develop uh, services for them to start to, to build a brand loyalty with them. So again, uh, I hope people <laughs> will, uh, will, will be able to go to sleep. And if not, they can, they, they can find um, um, you know, documentation about this six paths that I just talked about. Thank you, Ben. The world is getting very uncertain, very complicated. And as we spoke, relying on R&D to do all innovation is not going to be sufficient. You have to leverage the innovative capabilities of everyone in the organization. Anyone can innovate, even in HR, in legal. Innovation needs to become a habit, and you speak about it in your book as well. It needs to be a part of everyone's job. Yes. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners some ideas on what they can do weekly, daily to develop this habit. Very good question. Um... So I, as I just said, you know, the important thing is, is really to recognize that anybody can innovate, anybody has a potential, anybody has a customer. And uh, innovating is fundamentally uh, about focusing on, on the customer. So I think just like you said, a habit, I like to think of it as a, as a, as a muscle. Uh, and, and just like uh, 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 health conscious people go to the gym, on a regular basis, people should also, on a very regular basis, get involved in any kind, any kind of innovating activity. And this can be the, them in trying to innovate or be part of the, 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 the project that is trying to innovate something specific, or they can be part of a cross uh, disciplinary team and they can be representing first HR if they are in HR. They can be representing legal as legal, even though the project might be about something different. I think to, to, to just um, get into the habit of switching your mind, switching your muscle from being uh, excessively focused on, uh, on uh, execution and for just a moment, uh, switch your mind to innovation and, 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 and use some of, just like for people who go to the gym, we, I have a, a set of tools and techniques, and even I have a seven-step process that people can use to actually run a full innovation project. So I think it's really a question of creating on a regular basis time and space for people to be involved uh, in some innovative activity. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be every two months, you know, one hour. I mean, that, that is, by the way, the key, if you allow me, when people, uh, you know, think that, as I said, innovation has to come from the leaders. Everybody has a very important role to play. 
I mean, the leaders have a role to play. The, uh, the ones that are surprised, I'm very surprised in my research, have a very critical role to play is the uh, middle managers and then the front line. So the front line are the ones who generate the ideas. The middle managers are the ones that connect the ideas and connect the innovators together. And the senior leaders are the ones who actually put innovation at the center of the company's strategy uh, are the ones who have to ultimately give, give permission. So all three layers have a role to play. And again, if, if we have time, I can give you yes. uh, another example. Uh, uh, this is, this is uh, Bayer, the uh, German global pharmacology and life sciences company. This is a company with a very rich a history of scientific achievements coming from its scientists and its R&D. But in 20, I think it was 2014, they, they built an innovating engine to leverage the innovating capabilities of the 100,000 employees working in the company. So first they made the whole board responsible for innovation. Then they selected 80 senior managers from across all country groups and global functions to support the board as innovation ambassadors. They call them innovation ambassadors. And these ambassadors spent most of their time explaining, advocating, and supporting uh, uh, innovation with middle managers. And then for these middle managers, they created a fantastic support structure. Uh, between 2016 and 2020, they trained and certified a thousand innovation coaches, mm. uh, uh, activated locally around the world. And then finally for frontline to, to, to enlist frontline uh, people, they created WeSolve. It is a digital platform where anyone can, any employee can post information about problem they, they're struggling with and invite input and ideas from anyone across the organization. Uh, at any time, uh, actually I, I had a chance to see the, 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 the platform. At any time, they have about 200 challenges uh, on, the, on the platform. And up to now they had 40,000 people uh, participated in WeSolve. And the, the website, by the way, is in English and they have, uh, have 50,000 people speaking um, English. And what I found the most fascinating is that most of the ideas, when somebody posts a problem and they get ideas and solutions and uh, uh, innovative ideas, most of the ideas come from a department different from the one where the uh, question was initiated. And I think this is a fantastic um, example of, uh, well, first, how you uh, can have a systematic approach to build the innovating engine, but how you can enlist everybody across the organization to help with innovation. This reminds me of Adidas ETPU example you have in the book as yes, well. Yes, yes, absolutely. This is, this is fantastic. I mean, I think for me, there are two critical spaces that need to be built in the company to uh, stimulate 
uh, and to support the innovating engine. One, there should be a space that is, um, how would I say, created to close the gap between the innovators and the customer. So you remember the example, I mean, I could, I, I could give you another example, but you remember the example of Quartza when they send a team to the plants? Mm -hmm. So this is really bringing the innovators or the would-be innovators, the people who are looking for ideas, bring them close, close the gap with the customer. Um, and then the second space to, to close is, is, is really to bring the internally, the people who are going to come up or generate the ideas together with the salespeople, to people with the people who are facing the customers. If you don't bring those two people and they don't communicate, it is very difficult. Uh, you, you keep the silos. So the, 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 the example you're talking about, it, it was BASF where one of, um, uh, one of the salespeople uh, 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 you, you're talking about the foam, right? Yes. The, the, the boost. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the salespeople uh, uh, was, was talking to, uh, as a matter of fact, we're closing the loop back, was talking to a construction company from Japan about a foam that uh, uh, BSF developed that helps uh, soundproof uh, buildings. This is soundproofing foam. So they were having this sales meeting with the with a Japanese customer, and then accidentally, somebody spilled coffee on the blueprints, and the the sales guy kind of automatically grabbed a, a piece of the foam and and tried to to clean the coffee, uh, which which did very nicely, but he kind of noticed that not only it had cleaned. The, the coffee, it had uh, dried the coffee, but it had actually cleaned the dye from the blueprint, which was a property that they were not aware of. So what is really interesting about this example is that the salesperson, because that space between the R&D and the scientist and the salespeople was um, as a culture was closed because they had, I mean, I explain it in the book, what they went through to build this partnership, internal partnership between the scientists and the R&D and the salespeople. The salesperson went back, made a video of the, the thing and sent it around to scientists. And this is how they, they came up with this, uh, this new product, which, uh, became, they, they worked with, uh, I think, PNG, and then it became one of their biggest selling uh, products. So, but here, the key point, Chris, is that they were able to create this space, this partnership internally between the salespeople and the scientists, which is something um, not easy to do internally, you would be surprised. Yes, and two amazing world-famous products came out from this company that you mentioned in the book. One is Absolutely. Boost Absolutely. in 2013 by Adidas, and yes. another one is yes. Mr. Clean Magic Eraser that you just yes. mentioned. Absolutely, yes, yes, absolutely. And the process was exactly the same. It's really somebody uh, who was facing the customer, saw a problem, and uh, uh, because of the, 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 the processes and the structures that had been newly created in the company, there was a way to channel that information directly 
to people who actually could work on it, even though, even though that was not part of the product line of the company. I mean, this is the important thing is that the salesperson saw a problem uh, that had nothing to do with what the company was doing, but they thought that they would report that to the, to the, to the, to the scientists. What I wanted to mention also for listeners, and I highly recommend to read the book. It's an amazing book. It's called Build to Innovate. In the example of Adidas and ETPU, when certain properties were discovered, that scientist sent videos to the entire company and someone had connections and knowledge to be able to take it to Adidas. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is this is a very important component that uh, uh, you know I built into my model. I said there's 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 the creation process. So there's 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 the, the idea to generate the idea or to generate the insight, if you will. You know that there's a problem or there's a property that, that seems to be interesting. But if you don't connect it internally with uh, other ideas or with other people who can help, if you don't have that connective uh, process or that connective system, that social network where uh, uh, ideas get connected or uh, uh, innovators get connected to people who can help them, then, I mean, things don't happen. Things don't happen. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised. Um, uh, as you can imagine, I, I, I work with a, a broad range of companies and if you notice the companies I've been mentioning are very different, and I did this on purpose, are different from the usual suspects, the usual companies that we think about when we talk about innovation, we think about the, the, the big tech, we think about the entertainment companies. I mean, they're mentioned in the book, but, but I try to also focus on the regular established companies, uh, B2, B2C, like I talked about cement, about talk chemical, I talked about um, suppliers to the auto industry. Uh, so, so you can see that, that that can happen in any kind of company if, 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 if you build uh, this infrastructure where people at the front line can create and generate these ideas or these insights, then they get connected through the integrating process uh, where they get channeled, the ideas get channeled and connected to others. And then you have senior leaders um, uh, giving permission, but also creating the uh, infrastructure for people to be able to innovate. But then let's say our listeners identified certain product they need to introduce for the customers or service. They followed your advice and now they know what they need to do. They know the product or service. How do they co-create it with the customer? Can you give us some tips on that? Oh, this is, this is a very important, uh, very important uh, aspect. And, 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 and you could see uh, I have quite a, a, a lot of examples um, in, in, the, in the book about that. I think the, Again, if I come back to uh, the, the cement example, for instance, I mean, uh, they created uh, what they called a win-win-win partnership where number one, and this was a breakthrough for them. So you remember once the regulators uh, uh, changed, you know, the regulation and allowed for GGBS to be a product on the, on the market, 
then the company created this partnership internal first between the scientists and the salespeople. And then they, they would have the salespeople together with the, uh, uh, the scientists go to the customers and, and, and discuss with them. And that was a real breakthrough because the customers were uh, very, very happy to be able to talk to scientists who know who knew about the technology, who knew what the technology could do, and even solve problems that uh, uh, were, were not necessarily something that uh, the salespeople uh, knew about. So they could actually, the engineers at the customer and the engineers uh, uh, at Ecosem could could actually have a conversation together and 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 like you say, co-create new. Uh, uh, not only discover new problems, but co-create new solutions. So I think it is really important to uh, create this partnership, this space. And of course, people uh, need, need to, to, again, have, um, they would not necessarily know how to start to have like a process, a structured process, a systematic approach to start to work on listening as I said earlier, to what are the problems the customer is facing, uh, sometimes helping the customer discover their own problems because they don't necessarily know what you can do for them. Uh, and very often they assume you can't help them so they don't ask you. So you have to engage with them, better understand and help them understand their own problems. I think this is, this is the key, this win-win-win uh, internal partnership and a partnership with the customer. And uh, if people don't necessarily know uh, systematically how to uh, co-create with the customers or how to uh, find new ideas, uh, they can use systematic tools. I mean, there's, I, 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 I'm quite agnostic about which methodology to use. I mean, people use design thinking, some other people use uh, systematic innovation. There are quite a number of techniques out there. Uh, in the book, I uh, describe a seven step process that people can use together internally or with their customer to co-create. And just like I was uh, saying earlier, people who go to the gym to practice and to strengthen their, their muscle, they use equipment, equipment to strengthen their upper body or their legs. And as you get stronger, which means that as you practice, the habit becomes internalized and the less you need the tools. In fact, your people and the customer internalize the tools and you don't need, you don't need the tools anymore. But I noticed uh, with the companies I worked with and the training that I offer, that uh, people need at least one or two projects where they need to have uh, the, 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 the guide, a guidebook or a guide, a, a guiding framework to actually learn how to interview customers, how to observe uh, uh, in a plant, how to listen to the silence of the customer, how to work in teams, you know, because uh, creating a, a team with your customer internally is not easy, but also creating a, a, a joint team with your customer is not easy. So there are a few um, rules and principles to put in place. And once you've done this for once or twice uh, on a project, then it becomes almost uh, uh, you know, natural, uh, second nature. And people can uh, this way co-create with their customers, 
even broaden the uh, business model uh, to to uh, other players in the in the in the ecosystem. Um, so, in 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 essence, I think the important thing is first to give permission to people to innovate beyond you know uh, uh, the usual suspects of. Uh, uh, R&D or the specialist of innovation, uh, create a space internally, a partnership internally between the innovators and the people who are close to uh, the customer, create a space also to close the gap with the customer, and when needed, uh, use a systematic tool uh, and process until it becomes second nature. And this way you are able to create this um, what I called innovating engine, where again, you can see anybody, now you can see more clearly how anybody can innovate. You can innovate in everything you do because tools and the processes can be applied to any problem. It can be, it is very generic. It can be applied to a product, to a process, and even to a function. And then if you are very careful, in particular, you remember the important role of middle managers they are the ones who have to look after uh, the, the, the innovating engine. They are the ones who have to create that space, give permission, make sure that everybody is involved in innovating uh, activities on a regular basis. And then you will have a very nicely uh, humming innovating engine. Thank you, Ben. Could you share with us two, three books that had the biggest impact on your career and your life? Oh, on my career altogether, uh, or on, let, let, me, let me stick with, uh, with, with innovation per se, uh, or, or, or what I talk about in the, in the, in the book. I think one of, of course is um, uh, how it got started for me is a, a book by a colleague of mine at INSEAD, uh, two colleagues of mine at INSEAD, uh, Chang Kim and Rene Moborn. It's called Blue Ocean Strategy. And another one also that was very influential for me in terms of understanding the, the roles uh, uh, for innovation and the importance of the processes uh, that I have in my framework, uh, the BTI framework, is a book by Sumantra Goshal, they Sumantra Goshal and Christopher Bartlett. It's called The Individualized Corporation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This so would much. be two, 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 two good references for me. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to share? Well, I would say again, uh, just to, 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 to wrap up, is that uh, as you mentioned earlier, we're, we're living really in a, in, in a very uncertain world um, and highly paced. And I don't think organizations can simply rely on a genius leader or on R&D and they really need to enlist and, 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 and leverage the innovating capability of everyone. And for this, they need to create what I call the innovating engine, that, that space where very legitimized and protected space where anyone can innovate. As again, you can innovate in everything you do beyond products and technology and make innovating a habit. I think this is uh, the key to uh, developing and maintaining a competitive advantage going forward. Well, Ben, let people know where can they learn more about you, your book, anything that you want to mention to us. 
Uh, well, the, the book uh, has a website. It's called uh, www.bti, BTI, like built to innovate, btithebook.com, www.btithebook.com, or they can find it also on their local Amazon uh, website. And they can, of course, find uh, find me on uh, the INSEAD Business School website, and uh, and they can email me there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. But I want to thank you for being on the show today. I think what you shared with us on the show was very valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really, really exciting and fun. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, again, for tuning in. My guest again has been Dr. Ben Benzel. Make sure to check out his brand new book. It's called Build to Innovate. And I will see you next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.